0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, with a foreword by Angela Davis. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa is an ambitious masterwork of political economy detailing the impact of slavery and colonialism on the history of international capitalism. In this classic book, Rodney makes the unflinching case that African maldevelopment is not a natural feature of geography, but a direct product of imperial extraction from the continent, a practice that continues up into the present. Meticulously researched how Europe underdeveloped Africa, remains a relevant study for understanding the so-called Great Divergence between Africa and Europe, just as it remains a prescient resource for grasping the multiplication of global inequality today. In this new edition, Angela Davis offers a striking foreword to the book, exploring its lasting contributions to a revolutionary and feminist practice of anti-imperialism. How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney with a foreword by Angela Davis. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. There is a profound economic, social, and political crisis in Venezuela. More than 3 million refugees and migrants have fled the country. Opposition leader Juan Guaido has declared himself president. Trump and conservative presidents throughout the Americas quickly recognized him as just that. The U.S. has hinted at the possibility of a military invasion and has already imposed major sanctions on Venezuelan oil, the country's economic lifeblood. It's unclear what comes next. But an already extremely bad situation could become catastrophic. Meanwhile, many conservatives throughout the Americas, including in the United States, are pointing to Venezuela as proof that socialism cannot work. What, then, is the correct analysis? What does solidarity with the Venezuelan people mean for today's left outside of Venezuela? given that so many of us have been, for very good reason, deeply supportive of the Bolivarian Revolution? These are all extremely complicated and urgent questions, and today I have three experts on Venezuela, Alejandro Velasco, Gabriel Hetland, and Naomi Schiller, to help answer them. Before we get started, The Dig can only exist and bring you discussions like this because listeners like you support us at patreon.com slash the dig. $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. The next one is by Alyssa Battistoni, analyzing last week's interview on populism with Laura Gradin and Theoria Francos. $10 gets you a copy of either Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and we will send you a box full of left wing books. So please take a quick moment to put me on pause and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Alejandro Velasco, Gabriel Hetland, and Naomi Schiller. Alejandro Velasco is professor of Latin American history at NYU and executive editor of NACLA Report on the Americas. He is the author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics in the Making of Modern Venezuela, which won the Fernando Coronel Prize for Best Book on Venezuela from the Latin American Studies Association. Gabriel Hetland is professor of Latin American Studies at University of Albany, SUNY. His writings on participatory democracy and politics in Venezuela and Bolivia have appeared in a number of academic journals and edited books, and such outlets as The Guardian, The Independent, The Nation, Jacobin, and NACLA. Naomi Schiller is Professor of Anthropology at Brooklyn College, CUNY, and the author of Channeling the State, Community Media and Popular Politics in Venezuela. Alejandro Velasco, Gabriel Hetland, and Naomi Schiller, welcome to The Dig.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us.
0: The U.S. has recently taken at least two serious actions in an attempt to force Maduro from power in Venezuela. First, recognizing opposition leader Juan Guaido as the legitimate president shortly after he had declared himself to be just that. And then second, imposing major sanctions on Venezuelan oil. But the crisis in Venezuela, of course, is far from new. So my first question is, Why is it that the opposition, the U.S. government, and conservative governments throughout Latin America moved when they did? And secondly, what does it reveal that they moved together in lockstep?
2: This is Alejandro. What it amounts to is a convergence of... On hand, events on the ground that make this moment propitious for this kind of intervention, and also, as you mentioned, the the, the geopolitical alignment. It's no surprise, and to some extent, no, uh, it shouldn't come as no surprise that um, on January first is when. Jair Bolsonaro, the new president of Brazil, takes office. And very soon after that, he receives a visit from John Bolton, who's, of course, himself recently appointed as a national security advisor. And then you see it, this kind of very rapid kind of ramping up of a, of a geopolitical play uh, vis-a-vis Venezuela. Um, so I think the first thing to consider is this this larger geopolitical alignment that, as you're suggesting, is comprised of primarily more conservative governments um, in the region, but the other element is more domestic, and this speaks to your point about the longer-stemming crisis that Venezuela has been immersed in. One of them, of course, has social and economic implications, which has to do with, um, you know, rampant hyperinflation, which makes the price of everything so expensive, and um, it's hard for folks to to get access to most most things. Our social crisis having to do with with crime and violence, and of course the political crisis of a stalemate that, to a significant extent, extent, has been propagated by the government itself and closing off more and more opportunities for the opposition to to have some you know democratic escape valves to challenge its power and its rule, and so you know that all amounts to a showdown that people were expecting to happen actually a little bit sooner on January 10th, which was when Nicolas Maduro was. Was supposed to, or he did swear himself as a. He, he was sworn into a second term of, of six years of office after having won elections last year, which were, uh, you know, by some decried as, as fraudulent. And then the opposition, led by Huang Guaido, who was the National Assembly president, had long threatened that if he did swear to a new term of office, that they would not recognize him as a legitimate president. Which then, by one constitutional reading of an article in the constitution, suggests that then power vests to the National Assembly president. Guaido did not do that on the 11th of January when people expected him to do. Instead, that announcement happened on the 23rd. And it was highly coordinated, as you mentioned, that you know, one country after another in Latin America and others around the world immediately showed their support behind that move. So that's, that's where we are.
3: Yeah, I also think that in terms of sort of more long-term game, I mean, I think many people in Venezuela think that the class faction that Guaido represents, this right ring, was betting on this scenario for more than a year so that there was sort of a long-term plan to have very low turnout for the, the last elections as a way to sort of set the stage to create a delegitimized political process and to show this huge drop in voter turnout. So I think that's analysis that I hear coming from people in Venezuela. This was, you know, really uh, in the planning for some time. And I would also stress that I think it's connected to the government shutdown in the United States and the need for Trump in this particular moment to, you know, I think he wants his own war and that this is a way to, in very crude terms, distract from what's going on and to try to unite Um, the very disparate forces that he's uh, dealing with.
1: Yeah, and I agree with everything that um, Naomi and Alejandro are saying. You know, just to flesh out the picture of the regional shift, there's now conservative governments in a number of countries, um, in Argentina, in Chile, in Colombia, which is more longstanding. Ecuador has had a sort of right-wing turn. Um, So there's been a major shift in the region over the last, you know, just five years. Um, So that's a very important factor in terms of the timing. And then I think something, part of the domestic scene, maybe going back to 2014, there's been a shift since then between a more moderate sort of center-right opposition led by people like Enrique Capriles uh, from Primera Justicia, which was a party that um, is certainly on the right, is certainly a conservative party, but was actually copying Chavismo in the 2012 and 2013 election and had done some pretty interesting things at the local level. So they were a much more moderate force. And actually, in um, 2014, in January, they were in talks with uh, Maduro. Um, Capriles and Maduro were meeting. They were discussing um, possibly raising the domestic price of gas. And then a month later, we see the 2014 protest kicked off by Leopoldo Lopez leading them, Maria Corina Machado, another hard right leader. And from that point on, the center of gravity within the opposition shifted from this sort of more moderate faction to a more hard right faction with a lot of encouragement and certainly coordination at various points um, with the U.S. government. So I think that we're seeing that all play out now as well, that the opposition you know, as Alejandro says, there, there has been a closing of democratic channels for dissent by the Maduro government. Um, but there's also been this sort of shift from a more moderate to a more hard um, hardline opposition. And I think we're seeing the unfortunate consequences of that now.
0: Is a coup possible? Hugo Chavez, of course, cultivated a very particular sort of relationship with the military, an institution that he came out of and from which he developed an rather idiosyncratic vision of a left nationalist military at the service of the Venezuelan people even though he himself of course was briefly ousted in a coup but but what about Maduro what is his relationship like with the armed forces and does he have their allegiance
3: I just was going to say that you know I don't I think the question is a coup possible, I think it's clear that we're seeing a coup attempt in the making and the unfolding, and the question is really, will it be successful? And of course, that leads to the question of Maduro's relationship with the military. Um, so were you going to speak on that, Alejandro?
2: Yeah, no, I mean, for now, it seems like the military is behind him, at least in terms of the the higher echelons of the military. The thing with the military is that it's, it's a, you know, it's it, we tend to think of it as, a, or talk about it in homogenous terms, but in fact, there's a lot of schisms and internal kind of differentiation to have to, to consider. So one thing is these upper core of the military, uh, Venezuela has something upwards of 3,000 3, generals, which is, you know, compared to the size of its military, which is about 250,000 troops, it's, it's way disproportionate. And partly the Maduro government has used some of this to bring more people within the military into the fold of the inner circle of, of some of the you know, some of the webs of, of corruption that they've that the government has engaged in, which the military again at these upper um, levels has a lot of significant hand in. But then there are these middle sectors of the military, so called comacates and in, in as they're called in Venezuela, um so commanders, majors, captains and lieutenants, and of course, Hugo Chavez himself was a commander, and, and most of the moves that we've seen in terms of attempts at uh, military insurrection um, over the last few years, certainly last year, there, there were a couple, and, and in fact, earlier in January, there was one, they've come from this middle rank of the population, and, or of the military, and of course, these are the people who are going to be um, Following the orders. These are the people who are then going to also issue orders to the troops to be able to fend off an invasion or a more direct kind of coup attempt. And so that's the people the opposition has been targeting to try to to flip, not the upper echelons, but it's these middle layers and then at the at the troops level, of course, these are people who are who come from, largely from from the poor neighborhoods of, of Venezuela and um, and so they you know their their family members suffer the the brunt of the crisis as well, right? So although it's clear that at the upper echelons the military is was well behind Maduro in part because they see that you know should he leave there um, next would be out um, you know, exposed. But it's the middle layers where the the question is far far more uncertain. And those,
0: those poor neighborhoods are
2: also the traditional Chavista base. Exactly. Although we've seen over the last um, two or three weeks um, interesting kind of protests that are emerging from these neighborhoods, the the nature of the protests has been um, significant because what they tend to focus on are precisely the kinds of things that the traditional opposition has long kind of dismissed as, as uh, primary grievances. What they focus on, they here being popular sectors, are things like hyperinflation or things like the, the collapse of services, um, you know, gas, electricity, water. Those are the kinds of very immediate, although you know hugely consequential um you know grievances that they express that are now increasingly being linked up with with these opposition protests to suggest that the the nature of of the opposition is is uh, extending beyond its traditional base.
1: I think that what Alejandro is pointing to is really important and possibly a sort of place where things could shift, and maybe even rapidly, in terms of the popular sector protests that are happening. And if there's sort of an escalation of repression, there has been some repression of that occurring, which is a a pretty big shift. In the past, we have seen repression of middle and upper class political protests, using the term political to sort of signal their, you know, anti-dictatorial rhetoric and things like that. Um, And the more sort of um, economic grievance, for lack of a better word, everyday problem grievances and that sort of protest happening in the popular sectors, hasn't had the same level of repression, but that may be shifting now. And I think an interesting question and a very important question will be, will the troops in particular who come from those same communities, will they refuse at some point or points to repress popular sector protests? And could that set in motion a different dynamic? Or will there be an escalation of repression of popular sectors, which could lead to more turning against Maduro and then of popular sectors combining their more economic demands about basic goods, services, hyperinflation, the ravages of the economic and social crisis with more explicitly political demands. So all of that could potentially have an an impact on upper echelons of the military, although there's a lot of things in play, so it's very difficult to map out exactly what might happen.
0: What about U.S. military intervention? How plausible do you think that is? What might it look like operationally? And most importantly, of course, what impact would it have on Venezuela and the situation there and the people who live there? It it seems like many in the military would perhaps remain loyal to the government in the case of an invasion, and the Venezuelan populace is heavily armed.
1: It seems like there's been a shift within the Trump administration in terms of the people around Trump. In August of 2017, and then you know over the last year at various points, Trump has made clear that he wants to engage Venezuela militarily or he wants to seriously think about it, and he got a lot of pushback from top military officials within the U.S., And a lot of those folks have been replaced in the last year, some of them very recently, as Alejandro was saying, John Bolton's very recent addition, Mike Pompeo's a fairly recent addition as well. Um, And then Marco Rubio's influence, he's a hardliner, seems to be growing. Um, So that's very scary. And I think that that has increased the possibility of U.S. military action. And probably the scariest is Elliot Abrams, the sort of you know, practically a genocide yeah. year taking the reins. And I think it's amazing. I mean, every single day, you know, if I went a week ago, I would have said, no, not really. There's not a real likelihood of US military engagement. And today it feels like there is a much higher likelihood. It doesn't mean it's the number one option. It doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen today or tomorrow, but it does feel like a real possibility. Um and we have a lot of, you know, people who just are kind of nuts to be honest.
2: I mean, I think partly, too, this speaks a little bit to what has been a longer pattern of regime change strategy on the part of the United States the world over, which is that it basically puts all of its eggs in the short-term basket of effecting a quick, decisive shift in the leadership – and then things will kind of work themselves out. We don't really have to plan for day two. We don't have to even think about day two. The, the real significant thing is what we do in the, first, um, in the first blow. And to some extent, we're seeing that play out right now. I think that uh, the calculation on the part of the United States and its local allies in Venezuela was that you know this tremendous coordination of support behind Guaido on January 23rd would have much more quickly than it has brought about a fracture. Within the military, which again is the centerpiece of what's actually going to happen in, on the ground in venezuela, and they didn't um, and I think they were kind of surprised by that, but of course, having made that um, that gamble, the only alternative that they have is to continue to escalate right and so um, you know, we we saw the the first an, an ultimatum that was that was issued by Maduro that all diplomatic personnel had to leave within 70, 72 hours, which would have been last Sunday, and then he rescinded that. And I think in part was because he realized that all he has to do is win this day. He just has to win one more day. Every day that he wakes up in the Miraflores presidential palace is another day that forces the hand of again the United States and its allies abroad and domestically to. Have a quick resolution to the stalemate. The problem, of course, is that as that gets closer and closer to any to some kind of military intervention, it risks fracturing some of the more, you know, wavering allies that it's been trying to court or has been able to court. In particular, the European Union, which whose support has been a little bit, you know, more tepid than that of its regional partners in Latin America. So, you know, uh, Maduro is not so much playing the long game; he's just playing the daily game of survival, such that when will force the hand of the United States to move into that only kind of escalating option of, um, of intervention, which would be, you know, ultimately disastrous. And one doesn't have to be clairvoyant or particularly left-wing to understand that that has been the, the legacy of U.S. intervention in Latin America and elsewhere.
3: And I think it's been really interesting to see how various Uh, U.S. state leaders, leading Democrats have, you know, sort of fallen in lockstep with the Trump administration and their lack of, you know, people who like to call themselves the resistance suddenly following just right in line with the Trump foreign policy. Um, And then you see some Democrats like Ilhan Omar, Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, and then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a bit um, expressing opposition to intervention. Um, But in some tepid terms at times, at least Bernie sort of buried the lead in a very long Twitter thread. (laughs) He eventually said, you know, the U.S. has this terrible history of intervening and we can't go down that road. But um, so, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of um, generating a different conversation uh, with with you know u s. lawmakers, Congress people about the future of this. I mean, I think there are some seeds, but um it's an uphill battle,
1: and I think it, it it's just worth underlying what um, Alejandro mentioned a second ago, just how you don't have to be clairvoyant to see how absolutely devastating you know a coup would be within Venezuela. I think that um especially if it's accompanied with u s. military action that would be atrocious. Um, but already the types of actions that the U.S. have done are going to make the crisis much, much worse. So mm-hmm. suffering of everyday Venezuelans is going to increase. And this is not something the U.S. is unaware of. They're profoundly aware of it. And there's people making these crazy, abhorrent statements that we have to make the crisis worse. They know exactly what they're doing, and they're trying to increase suffering to get the population and the generals and everybody else to go against Maduro. And it's a v- incredibly... It's
0: right-wing accelerationism. Right,
1: exactly. It's a really risky gamble, and the people they're gambling with are Venezuelans. Um, they're suffering, so it's, it's really... And I atrocious. think on that
3: note, it's not even just about some imagined, you know, maybe close future, but this experience for people right now on the ground of having to live through these days of just intense insecurity and anxiety about you know, the future, I mean, and just already having to manage with the difficulties of gaining access to basic commodities just to live and the basic things that people need to do to get stuff done every day. To add to that this like tremendous fear, um, I think it's just sort of, you know, really um, dangerous and violent and cruel.
0: On that note, before we move on, we really should underline what is the the current economic and social reality for everyday venezuelan people
2: so i was just in um, caracas for a couple of weeks in january um i timed it <laughs> strangely i arrived on january 10th which is exactly when i thought everything would go down and in fact it was a completely quiet day it was the fastest that i've ever uh, traveled from the airport and the coast to you know up to caracas there's no traffic nothing going on and i left on the 22nd thinking oh well This is pretty much status quo. Nothing's really going to happen. So I don't know if anybody else has shared this, but I certainly was incredibly surprised at just the pace of events over the last week. Um, But, you know, what a few things, I guess, just reflections on, on being there. And the last time that I was there was a year ago in January of last year. Um, you know, the first thing that that struck me is that it is absolutely evident the, um, uh, the exodus of people from Venezuela, and this is now cross-cutting, right? So in the streets, the kind of traffic that used to be uh, synonymous with Caracas, and you've heard this in stories uh, reported, but it's certainly true. It's just not there, um, there's just not a lot of cars circulating. Um, so-called busetas, our uh, little colectivo minibuses, which is what, for instance, I used to use to get around, significantly, those are basically now gone from the streets of Caracas. Which has been, you know, for me, was a ve- very disconcerting sight. It just didn't seem um, like the Caracas that I've that I've long known and, and that I grew up in. Um, and that has to do with lack of replacement parts, for instance, of uh, that that keep these fleets going. Um, so that was one. thing Thing. Um also for instance at night you you know you look out um into the city and you see many buildings, for instance, with maybe two or th- you know, eight thirty PM at night, right? Not even very late, maybe um Two or three apartments have their lights on, but all the rest are are dark because people are just not there. And even in popular sectors, so one of the places that I work most closely in is a neighborhood called Ventitra January 23rd, which has long been you know major sort of bastion of support for the government. Um, you know, you walk around the neighborhood and it's palpable just how few um, youth of ages between say 18, 20, and about 35 are there. It's primarily just younger kids. And and older people. So that is clear and um, and unmistakable, and really shifts the the local dynamics in a way that I had not really anticipated. The other thing that you notice very quickly is um, the prices, right? So basically, you have now a kind of de facto dollarized economy. um whereas before if you had access to dollars, you could kind of play with the the parallel rate and make the your money uh, you know pr- go pretty far. Now, um you know even prices of things like coffee are basically nearing parity with um with the parallel rate, um which of course make means that if you don't have access to dollars, then um you're really shit out of luck, and so that becomes a huge problem as well. What I also saw, which was a bit of a paradox, is You know, there was actually not the kind of shortages of products that um, I had seen in previous um, times visiting. Even in in stores uh, or Mercados Populares, they're pretty well stocked, right? Um, The problem now is not the kind of, you know, um, uh, sort of literal shortages, but the more functional shortages that we see in, uh, you know, in capitalist economies, where, you know, it's the fact that you can't actually purchase products um, that makes it more, uh, makes them out of access, which then you talk to folks, again in popular sectors in barrios and that's their primary grievance because to some you know to some extent it's it's the more cruel kind of reality where great now there are products that are available whereas before there weren't even products and yet now i don't have access to them right so one of the major complaints that i heard from people in barrios was why is the government not doing something about the prices um uh, and instead it's devoting its attention to um you know things like beautifying you know uh cities and things like that right so that the the grievances are real. Um, the infrastructure is highly deteriorated. Um, the metro, for instance, because there's no you know public transportation really um, up on the streets. Now the, you know there's no time of, of the day when the the metro is not at rush hour, right? And so that has led to you know significant um, deficiencies. So it's uh, you know it's a tough haul for sure.
1: And just to, I mean, some sort of statistics that give a little bit of the big picture to what's happening over the last five years, Venezuela's economy has shrunk by about 50% or even more than 50%, which people have referred to as the greatest collapse of an economy in Latin American history. And it doesn't feel like hyperbole to say that in a non-wartime situation in particular. Um, And there have been. I'd be curious to hear, actually, about um, some of these things from Alejandro, who was just there. But years ago, there certainly were, you know, profound shortages of basic goods and food and uh, various things. There's, you know, massive shortages of basic medicine and um, just everyday things that people need to survive. And so, the number of people leaving, according to the United Nations, has been three million over the last um, number of years, and there could be even more of an exodus this coming year.
0: I saw a prediction of 2 million expected this year, additional, on top of the 3.3. 3.
1: Yeah, I've seen other predictions have set up to 5 million, which it's hard to believe some of that. And the IMF, they always predict, you know, a trillion inflation. Um, but things are really, really bad for sure. Um, so a question I had for Alejandra actually was just sort of, did you see the same shortages of key food items and Um, basic medicine and things like that, that you did see a couple of years ago, which were really pounding people and leading to poverty rates estimated at 80% of the population and, you know, average weight loss of seven kilos or about 20 pounds. So really major changes that were happening no not at all
2: um, I mean yeah from the basic you know, products toilet paper for instance which is a big one pan, um, which is what you know you, people use to you know uh, to make arepas which is a staple spaghetti you know toothpaste um, you know all these things are I saw they weren't you know I saw in all the stores that I went um, you go to the more mercado populares cheese food you know meat um, uh, fish um, you know chicken um, They they are available. Um, uh, the thing is prices, right? It's mm-hmm. just astronomical, and it shifts not just from day to day. it's shifts from stall to stall, right? You go to one stall, and they are selling you the adi napan for, you know, one amount, and then you go to another stall just down the hall, and it's they're selling you for maybe double that. Um, and so it creates this, you know, partly the, the hyperinflationary cycle is creates a problem of perception, right? You just don't know, that the price that you paid yesterday might not be the double that it, they're charging you today. And there's no way for you to negotiate. Um, and so it creates, it's, you know, it's sort of the self feeding cycle of, um, uh, of, uh, of rising prices, which again makes it even more, um, cruel to some extent, whereas before, yes, um, you know, it was just a lack of products. Now the products are there, but they're so far out of reach of most people that it, um, you know, that it, that it makes it even more, um, uh, you know, dramatic the kind of um, you know the the inequalities that are that are being um, you know created.
0: And Alejandro, a quick question on that: You said that people need access to dollars to buy these goods. Are those dollars coming through remittances from this enormous number of migrants who are now abroad?
2: Yep. So remittances, especially in the part of these popular sectors, those are huge source, an increasing source of revenue. But what one of the things you see right in some sectors is that, um, you know, people, uh, you know, uh, this is in the, sort of the, the eastern part of town, the wealthier part of town, you can just pay with PayPal. Um, and so you can avoid even having a cash economy to that extent, um, but certainly there are other places where, for instance, you you walk into a, a you know a restaurant and you immediately say, all right, a cuánto está el cambio? Uh, how much is the change of dollars? And they'll quote you. They'll look up online and they'll see a, you know like a one of the websites that you can point to, and they'll say, all oh, right, it's right now, it's two thousand. And you're like, all right, I have, I'll I'll just pay you in dollars. Um, and so. You know, one of the things that that I did this time that I didn't do last time is I took a bunch of singles, right? I took you know, very low denomination bills, um, and that's one of the ways that people, uh, you know, for instance, taxi drivers. Um, that's one of the ways that they prefer being, uh, you know, being paid. Naomi.
3: I think that's really interesting about the sort of subtle dollarization of the economy. But um, I was actually going to comment on the sort of social impacts of the economic crisis and the flawed exchange policy, how that has you know, I've talked to people about how it really has led to sort of a collapse of a lot of the social solidarities that people had built up over the years, during the Chavez years particularly, that, you know, because people could buy commodities cheaply at government-controlled prices and then, you know, turn around and sell them to their neighbors at, like, these incredibly insane, much higher prices, and people needed to do this to stay afloat. um, You know, I think that that experience really encourages distance and, and lack of community cohesiveness in new ways that that have ripped apart the kinds of community initiatives to look out for each other and to sort of maintain a broader sense of solidarity in people's neighborhoods. So I think that these conditions have really had a big impact on, on ripping apart those broader collective sense.
0: And I, I imagine the Coerced migration of more than three million people has done the same. I'm in in Santiago right now, and there are Venezuelans all over the place. I just met one woman last night who just arrived two months ago, who was working at a Peruvian chicken uh, place, and she was just abs- she's here with her husband and child, and she's absolutely devastated to to leave her country behind. And uh, I'm sure that stories could be repeated, you know, millions of times across the Americas and the U.S. and Europe, and A critical thing about this this migrant exodus we should touch on before we move on is that it sparked a really severely xenophobic response Mm -hmm. in a number of places. Recently in Ecuador, President Lenin Moreno has ordered a crackdown on Venezuelan migrants after a woman was murdered by her Venezuelan boyfriend, not a Venezuelan stranger, her boyfriend, which he really cynically, you know, using this case of domestic violence to scapegoat Venezuelan migrants as a whole. And at the same time, there was this massive vigilante attacks against Venezuelan migrants in the northern Ecuadorian city of Ibarra. I don't know if any of you can speak to the to the impact that that, that migrants are what migrants are experiencing and and how the impact it's having on the politics of of neighboring countries.
2: Yeah, I mean it's not the first time that there's been attacks directed against Venezuelans who've been um, who've been leaving. Um, earlier last year, there were a series of these kinds of um, you know anti-Venezuelan um, raids happening in the um, the Brazilian state of um, of Roraima, which borders Venezuela, and it's one of the routes that people, especially you know more uh, popular sector uh, parts of the population, are, are using um, in places like Bogota, Also last year, there was a sort of an encampment for people people, um, going from the border of Cucuta uh, and the border uh, city of Cucuta in, um, in Colombia to bogota on their way down to either Ecuador or to Peru. And they too, you know, were, uh, subject of, um, of violent attacks. And so this is not, you know, this is not new and it seems to be escalating. And part of the, what was so, um, uh, disconcerting about what happened in Ecuador was the number one, just the the extent of, of how violent it was, these, these, um, these attacks, but number two, that they received basically official sanctioning from Lenin Moreno, who, as Gabe mentioned, Gabriel mentioned before, you know, has has basically, even though he ostensibly had, um, you know, had come to power uh, as, as the successor of a left-wing president, he's basically turned full right and now is using Venezuelans as, as a scapegoat. So yeah, that's, um, Uh, But it also manifests itself in in other ways. Venezuelans are broader becoming this kind of political chip, whether it's to drive up xenophobia, or in the case of Chile, to ramp up, um, you know, racism against other um, migrants, right? So even though Chile passed this, you know, law or, of, of democratic responsibility that provides favored status for Venezuelan migrants, at the same time, in fact, on the same day that that was announced, um, there was a there was an announcement of a crackdown against Haitian migrants to, um, you know, to Chile, which is a notoriously, you know, like racist country. And so, you You know, it's the the politics of Venezuelans abroad um, is being uh, used in in, in really troubling ways when, in fact, what should be the primary response is one of humanitarian assistance and of of solidarity, regardless of any political, um, you know, ideology.
3: Yeah, just very interesting to think about in terms of sort of longer history. I mean, this is such a turning point. Um, as far as I understand it, in you know, Venezuela not having this history of mass out migration as so many other Latin American countries have had and and actually being, you know, the the destination for millions of Colombian migrants over decades. And one thing that I documented and, and thought about when I did research in Venezuela during the Chavez years was the intense xenophobia that poor Venezuelans expressed against Colombians who were you know often even poorer than them and and setting up communities sort of higher on the hillside in in Caracas and sort of those dynamics so i think you know and
0: and maduro has played with that as well correct
3: yeah So I think, you know, I mean, there were efforts. I mean, there there were official efforts by Chavez to, you know, incorporate Colombians and extend citizenship. And, you know, it was a complex process. But I think any attention that traces this experience really also needs to place it within the history of Venezuelan's experience in Venezuela and how these dynamics get played again and again and again in these different contexts.
1: Yeah. And the only thing I wanted to add was just that um, it's sort of an obvious point, but I think an important one that the migrant crisis in neighboring countries is intersecting with the right word shift. Um, politically within those countries, in these incredibly dangerous and toxic ways. Um, so you might have seen you know infrastructural issues. those are real. I mean, when you flood some of these Brazilian and other towns with you know thousands of additional um, people living there, that that obviously is going to create a situation that's difficult to deal with. But that is being combined with these sort of toxic, xenophobic, and very right wing um, politicized expressions. And they're not the only thing happening in those countries. I mean, we've seen these sort of basically fascist attacks on anyone from the LGBT community in Brazil, um, anyone who's part of the left, the PT, the Workers' Party. And so the Venezuelan sort of migrant um, situation is combining with that in these horrendous ways. And certainly at the moment, they appear to be strengthening the right domestically within those countries in ways that have you know, clear parallels with how Trump uses immigrants um, in the U.S. So I think that's a really bad dynamic and a really hard one to stop at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, in terms of parallels to Trump, Lenin Moreno's tweet about this that said, I think it was Todos Somos Diana, which was the name of the the murdered woman. It's just an incredible parallel to the way Trump has exploited the, the murder in San Francisco a few years ago of, of Kate Steinle by an undocumented immigrant to criminalize the image of, of immigrants as a whole.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the coordination that we've seen with, you know, actual actions on the ground with Guaido and Venezuela is also there's a you know coordination and then there's uncoordinated, but sort of parallel and merging dynamics. There's a rightward shift in the Americas overall, and that's playing out in all of these different places and people sort of copy each other and in, in very bad ways.
3: Yeah, just one more point about uh, remittances. I mean, I really think that it it would be very helpful to have a global perspective on how remittances work within immigrant communities around the world, but, um, you know, we see these patterns again and again of people being pushed out of their homes, um, you know, because of often U.S backed violence, um, and many other reasons. And, and that the entire national economy ends up being supported by people who come to the U S and in this case, Venezuelans are going to many other places, but, um, you know, and then finding very low wage exploitative work around the world and on the backs of that are supporting their friends and families at home. So that this becomes, you know, part of a much broader global process, um, around migration and and exploitation.
0: Gabriel, you wrote in a recent piece in The Guardian, quote, the case against Maduro is easy to make, yet it must be recognized that Venezuela's crisis is not solely Maduro's doing. How do do each of you apportion the blame for today's crisis in terms of a long-entrenched economic model, the actions of global capitalists, Chavez, Maduro, the conservative opposition, the United States, and whatever other actors and factors.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, the way I see it, and I'm really curious to hear how um, Naomi and Alejandra um, see the crisis, because I think there's so many factors that different people point to different ones and it illuminates a lot. But um, I see the government as having a primary responsibility for sort of kicking off the economic crisis about five-ish years ago. And that certainly had to do with the oil-dependent um, economy, which is a long-standing thing in Venezuela going back many, many decades. So it's not something that we can just blame Chavez or Maduro for. Um, it's something that has been a feature of Venezuela's political economy and so much else for a very long time. Um, but it certainly wasn't reduced, it wasn't changed, it wasn't transformed in ways that Um, are difficult to do, but necessary to do to sort of um, get away from the vulnerabilities of being highly dependent on a single volatile commodity like oil. Um, So that's certainly an important factor, but I think an even bigger sort of factor in the Past and it, it's continued to be a factor throughout the years, is a series of policy decisions the government made, in particular currency policy, which um, was deeply connected to sort of webs of corruption in the military, in the state, and the private sector throughout the sort of ruling echelons of Venezuelan politics, society, business, um, that Um, allowed the crisis to worsen year after year when there was very serious leftist economists, Mark Weisbrot being one of them in the U.S., and many very prominent economists, former Chavez advisors, Within Venezuela as well, telling the government this is a bad policy and you can fix it, and really providing clear policy solutions. And they continuously didn't fix that policy; they didn't switch it when they should have. And so that was a a major factor in leading to the sort of inflationary crisis and the negative economic growth we saw from um, you know really kicking off in a bad way from 2014-2015 onwards. So all of that I think is a major factor. It's not the only one though, and the U.S. and the domestic opposition also bear responsibility for what's happening. The U.S. has repeatedly tried to implement a regime change agenda in Venezuela going back to the early 2000s. They supported the 2002 coup. They've supported other efforts to remove Chavez. They've made statements about Venezuela being a national security threat under Obama. Um, So this is sort of a bipartisan policy. And all of those moves have some direct effects, but I think even more important or equally important are the indirect effects where they fan polarization within Venezuela. They prevent the government from taking policy decisions, such as correcting this currency policy that might be difficult, that might have some challenging things. And then they also have these sort of very direct effects on making Venezuela quote-unquote negative business climate for um, international businesses and international banks, which have been prevented from loaning money to Venezuela. In the past, it was sort of informal. It was like pressure from the U.S. to not do it. Over the last couple of years, it's become much more formalized, where it's very risky for U.S., um, any U.S. sort of connected businesses, which would be lots of international businesses all over the world to actually do that because they could be punished by the U.S. or prevented from engaging with uh, deals in the U.S. So all of that has an effect. And then the domestic opposition's role has been this sort of launching of um, often violent, not always, but often violent protest um, campaigns. We saw the guarimbas, which are sort of street Uh, protests and blockades, which were in 2014, another wave of that in 2017, Um, and there certainly are very legitimate grievances, and I think, you know, many of the people participating in those protests uh, were not part of the hard right, and it's important to mention that, but the leadership and certainly the fringe elements, which the leadership didn't um, sort of disavow, were wreaking a lot of havoc on Venezuela, and that was leading to property damage, and it was making the psychological and the political climate really, really polarized and preventing possibilities for solutions to the crisis. So I think the government has a huge responsibility, but it is a very shared responsibility for the devastating crisis they're facing.
0: Naomi?
3: I I think I would just say, I mean, I absolutely agree with everything that Gabrielle just said about um, you know, the the shared responsibilities. I mean the I hope that historians one day will be able to explain to us exactly the conversations that were going on, why the Maduro government didn't make these changes. You know, what what were what were those conversations like with all the economists saying this is really what needs to be done. But so clarity around that would be really helpful someday. Um but I think looking at a much more micro perspective in terms and some things that I've been thinking about in terms of the dynamics of trying to win, you know, popular hearts and minds during the Chavez years. I mean, I saw in my look at the production of state media and community television a real slide into this This view that that the revolution was already accomplished and the constant kind of selling of that,
1: you know, from
3: not as much at the community television level, but definitely at the state-run new outlets that began under Chavez, you know, and were really creative and were really open to debate and were really um, experimental and really shifted over time. Um, to sort of just trying to sell the revolution as if it was a tube of toothpaste and, um, and you know, and, and not having, and having very little trust in the ability of poor people to understand that the process, the, the political process was in motion and that there were the gaps between revolutionary goals and everyday practice, that, that poor people could grapple with grapple with the complexity, Um, and instead, you know, sort of prevailing factions and state media, again and again, approach poor audiences as like, you know, the beneficiaries of the revolution rather than the producers. And, I mean, I think that's just one much smaller piece, and I don't mean to attribute disproportionate responsibility for the crisis, but I think that is one small piece in in terms of the micro level of seeing what unfolded over time in terms of the space for democratic debate and real openness to explore the problems and discuss things like monetary policy really openly. (laughs) So, you know, I think that uh, that was in response to, you know, uh, the barrage of attacks by by the right wing. I mean, I think people felt like this was the only option or that they understood, state media producers understood that this was their only option to defend the gains. But I think it was a really misplaced or problematic response that did not produce um, the kind of debate necessary to, to face the contradictions as they emerged.
0: In a recent piece in The Nation, Greg Grandin wrote, quote, for more than a decade, high oil prices, and an ill-advised currency exchange rate let Chávez be a carefree broker, governing without having to really favor one class over another. The rich got richer, the poor got services, and people committed to socialism could believe they were building socialism. Instead of establishing lasting institutions, his government set up parallel tracks and left the existing civil and military bureaucracy alone to grow fat off various schemes— Hard decisions, especially concerning devaluation, were constantly deferred as the existing civil bureaucracy and military had ample opportunity to engage in rampant corruption. We've covered a little bit of this already, but, but my question um, from Greg's piece is, does this seem correct to each of you? D- did high oil prices allow Chavez to defer the sort of decisive conflict redistributive conflict with economic elites that would have been necessary to transform
2: the economy and avoid today's crisis? Yeah, there, to me, there's no question that that is, you know, that that is a a moment that history and historians will look back upon around 2003 and 2004, as the moment when what had previously been this extremely generative and very exciting, if, if also contentious. I mean, again, as, as Gabriel mentioned before, it had um, you know, culminated in, in not only a coup attempt in 2002, but also you know, a, a very grievous um, oil industry strike uh, or lockout in 2002, 2003. Um, so those were the kinds of tensions and, and battles that were, were playing out even before any major changes had been made um, at the economic level, um, at the at the political level, um, and uh, and they were yielding you know significant experiments on around grassroots democracy, around grassroots participation. Some of which exactly are the ones that that Naomi had had uh, pointed out. But right around 2003 and 2004, when oil prices begin to increase. One of the things that, that Chavez decides is well in part responding to you know to to these see these early years of significant turmoil is well what can I actually show concretely that the revolution has accomplished, especially facing what was in two thousand and four a recall referendum referendum? And that's when you begin to see these misiones, mission um, uh, you know, uh, the the social programs, the social missions that were directed towards first uh, education and then health and and later housing and um, and other kinds of services that were drawn from this tremendous windfall of, of revenues that, that Venezuela was receiving on account of uh, of these petrodollars that were circulating. Um, and so that's exactly the moment that instead of, as you suggest, um, and as, as Greg mentions in his article, instead of pushing the, the conflict that had already been um, uh, generated over the, the first four or five years of, of Chavez's presidency, instead he decided, well, we can just fund uh, a revolutionary process. And at the same time, have existing and sort of existing bureaucratic apparatus. Um, and, and both of those can can coexist somehow. Um, and they could insofar as there was money coming in. But once that money stopped flowing, then, of course, it was the the one that depended more significantly on the petrodollars that that suffered. So absolutely, there's no question in my mind that that moment around 2003, 2004, when the decision is made to. Um, you know, to move far more into a, a distributive agenda rather than a constructive one, um, that that's when, uh, you know, you begin to see a lot of the the problems that we're, um, that we're experiencing now um, really take hold.
1: And I, I also absolutely agree with Greg's analysis in which Alejandro has just deepened. Um, and if you look at the conflict between the government and the opposition between, you know, say 2002 and 2014, it's, it tracks very closely to the price of oil. Um, So 2002, the price of oil was still relatively low, um, and that was a huge year of conflict. Um, The price then starts to rise in 2003 and 2004, and there's still some conflict that happens, but the sort of golden years of Chavismo when there's relatively less conflict were sort of 2006 to 2012. Um, And those, not coincidentally, are years when the price of oil was very high. So, and what's extraordinary is during those years, State spending on education and healthcare as a percent of GDP doubled. So that's a tremendous amount of resources um, that's being directed. Inequality was dramatically reduced. I mean, the Gini coefficient went down by point uh, from like point, like a full point or so, um, or point one, uh, full point one. Um, so a major reduction in inequality. Poverty was cut in half from 2003 to 2008. Extreme poverty was cut by almost three-fourths, and yet the opposition wasn't sort of doing the same um, dramatically confrontational agenda, and the reason was there was plenty of resources to go around. So it seemed like it was working, it seemed like this great sort of experiment, but clearly they were deferring massive decisions, massive confrontations, massive problems, which started to hit the fan um, in mid-2014. Um, when the price of oil went down, and then there was these sort of more direct conflicts happening, and we see a ramping up of opposition protests. I think where that analysis maybe you know needs to be nuanced a little bit is that there's also political dynamics on the ground which have a degree of autonomy from the economic um sort of picture, but are clearly also pretty closely related to that.
3: And I would just add you know to the great stuff that Alejandro and Gabriel just said that. You know there was you can see that there was such um you know intense investment in participatory forms of action and political participation. And what the parallel institutions and the misiones made possible was that these these organizations were run together, you know, state actors with, official state actors with people from poor communities. That was absolutely the model was to include people and incorporate them, you know, whether it was Mission bajo adentro to put um, primary care physicians in neighborhoods that relied on enormous amounts of volunteer labor, I mean, sometimes in problematic ways, but, you know, that really drew people into the process. But what wasn't happening at the same time was an intense uh, shift to to allowing economic production and ownership, right? So there's this political participation and decision making to some extent, um, but that shift to em- economic production and ownership, um, you know, doesn't take off and doesn't really happen. I mean, there were there were some efforts, but to a large part, unsuccessful.
0: There's a huge irony here because people are are, are charging that the crisis in Venezuela proves that socialism. Can't work, but even though Chavez's rhetoric was about socialist revolution and there was profound, Naomi, as you've mentioned, uh, political transformation in terms of the participation of the the popular sectors in the country, the the in, redistribution really wasn't taking place. It was it was funded through high oil prices.
1: Yeah, this this argument is so infuriating that Brett Stevens is the latest person to make in the New York Times. Socialism is to blame for everything. First of all, it's just plain wrong. Venezuela didn't transition to socialism, and, and anyone serious who analyzes it knows that's the case. Um, if you look at the sort of private sector share of the economy when Chavez got to power in 1999, I think it was 65 ish percent, and it rose to I think you know 5 percent, around 70 percent in 2011. So you know, 12, 13 years later, after 13 years of quote unquote socialism happening, the private sector has a larger share in the economy than they had to begin with. Um, so clearly there wasn't this sort of socialist transformation and I think the socialistic measures which did exist in Venezuela were successful in many ways. They did reduce poverty, they did reduce inequality, they did foster a lot of direct popular empowerment. All of them were flawed, all of them were contradictory, all of them could have been done in better ways. Um, And there was conflicts that were deferred and all sorts of problems. Um, But it wasn't socialism that wrecked Venezuela. It was these sort of really bad economic policies that were very particular. I mean, the currency policy is not a socialist policy per se. Um, It's uh, just sort of bad economic management. With all that said, it is important to look at the dynamics that happened in Venezuela and the currency policy in particular did start from the conflict between the government and the opposition. So there was a real risk of capital flight happening in 2002, 2003 with the sort of initial conflict between the government and the opposition. And that's when the currency controls went into effect. And so they did have to do with the sort of classical left, right conflict, which has something, you know, sort of vaguely to do with socialism. Um, but after a couple of years, they didn't need to keep those currency controls in place. And it wasn't clear that they were doing anything to address a transition to, quote unquote, socialism. And yet they did keep them in place because of corruption. And, um, you know, we don't know. I think Naomi said it's a great project for historians to find out exactly why they kept those policies in place. Um, But I think it's a nonsensical argument to say that socialism is the root cause, which isn't to say that the left shouldn't analyze the Venezuelan case very carefully, look at the mistakes, look at precisely what could have been different. That is all fair game. That's all essential. But we need to do it in a serious way and not just using these sort of right-wing slogans.
0: To point to listeners who haven't seen it, uh, what you were referring to is Brett Stevens. Uh, recent New York Times column where he basically said Naomi Klein and Greg Grandin and Noam Chomsky essentially have blood on their hands because they had supported Chavez and that Ocasio-Cortez's platform will turn the U.S. into Venezuela. And Michael Bloomberg recently said Venezuela is why we can't radically redistribute wealth in this country. I agree with you entirely that it's something that we have a responsibility as leftists who've been in solidarity with the Bolivarian Revolution to examine where things have gone terribly wrong. But as you point out, the particular crisis right now, none of the macroeconomic policies that led to it are particularly socialist.
2: Well, especially if you think about the issue of taxation, right? I mean, tax in, taxes in Venezuela are, are a joke. There's no, there's, there's never, I mean, taxes, no one has ever Paid taxes in any significant way because it's a petrostate. Why would you pay taxes? Um, and so you know, people like Bloomberg, people like Stevens. In fact, they would do very well in a place like Venezuela because what's being taxed is not actually individuals or wealthy individuals. It's being taxed as the oil industry, right? So it's just a completely disingenuous argument on its face for all the reasons that um, that Gabriel mentioned. Um, and it would require you know really seriously exploring other countries like Bolivia. Why, why is Bolivia doing comparatively better? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's it's basically just using a cudgel, um, uh, which is convenient at the moment because of, of Venezuela's particular situation. Naomi?
3: I mean, I also think the Brazilian case really helps, you know, with the whole ridiculous sort of, uh, there was a good left and a bad left, and we should support Lula, and Lula was reasonable, and, and then... Lo and behold, pretty much in the same moment, we see, you know, a constitutional coup in Brazil and mass destabilization in Venezuela. So, um, you know, I think that that just gives credit that, that to the fact that there's any division between good and bad left um, was completely erroneous to begin with, but also places some perspective on that idea that, you know, it's socialism to blame because there was the same people saying, well, you know, Lula's doing this better, he's much more reasonable, he's respecting the right of of capital, etc. But we see the sort of same fruits
1: of uh,
3: intervention and
1: uh, destabilization in Brazil. And I think just to, you know, really briefly add to what we've all said, that people who observe Venezuela, sort of critics of Chavismo for years and years, they were saying Venezuela is going to collapse this year, it's going to collapse this year, it's going to collapse this year, and it kept not happening. So eventually it did happen. um, And though they were able to say, look, we're right, but they haven't done the self-reflection to say, well, we really weren't right if we kept saying it year after year after year and they weren't collapsing all of those years. And then a second thing, I think, which Naomi is just pointing to, the comparisons with Brazil, um, both of them have economies that are heavily dependent on extractivism, um, the sort of extraction of primary uh, commodities, oil obviously being the main one in Venezuela, oil also being an important one in Brazil. And so it's not coincidental that it was 2013, 2014 in particular, when Venezuela and Brazil were both having pretty severe economic difficulties, and they had wildly different macro... Well, they had wildly different sort of... Uh, perceptions that Venezuela is a socialist one and Brazil is a much safer one, Um, and yet they both have these problems for reasons that have nothing to do with socialism, but are...
0: Because they all depended on the commodity boom. Exactly. A speculative counterfactual I'd like to ask is, how might Chávez, were he alive, have responded to this crisis? Am am I naive to think that Chávez being, A, far more intelligent, B, having possessed this incredible savvy in terms of navigating and linking so many different political tendencies and social sectors and C, seeming just profoundly more concerned with the welfare of ordinary Venezuelans than Maduro, would he have handled this far differently?
3: I mean, who Uh, knows? I I think... So hard to speculate, but I do know that a friend texted me from Venezuela this morning saying, if Chavez was alive, I think none of this would be happening. So there's definitely a perception. I don't know what the answer is, but I would say there's a perception on the ground that Chavez would have been able to bring together these forces and,
1: and manage these contradictions to very different ends than we're seeing under Maduro. And I think what we saw with Chavez, I I agree with Naomi, and I think it's a mistake to let Chavez off the hook entirely for the current mess. I think that there's plenty of blame that Maduro deserves, but plenty of blame that Chavez also deserves. I mean, he kept the oil uh, model intact. He led all these generals into political positions. He allowed corruption to flourish even within his own family. Um, So he's, uh, you know, very guilty of a lot of the sort of uh, things that Maduro is guilty of to a lesser extent, I think, in some cases. But he also has a lot of blame. I think an important difference, there's two important differences, that um, Chavez was able to command all of the disparate factions within Chavismo, the grassroots sectors, the sort of political class, which had more revolutionaries, more sort of opportunists and some reformists who were genuine reformists, but not revolutionaries. And he was able to sort of link up with the various factions within the military. And he had a a strong degree of charisma and a strong degree of command over all of those forces. And secondly, he showed a lot of political and economic flexibility in particular moments. So after the 2002 coup, for the next year, he was actually pretty moderate in his economic policies and even in his sort of politics. He did start the Misiones, as Alejandro said, um, but there was a lot of moderation that was happening then. And at various moments, Chavez would either push ahead aggressively within you know, limits um, or he'd sort of pull back. So I think it is plausible to speculate and say that Chavez, with the currency policy, for instance, would have made potentially some different decisions. And he would have had the authority within the sort of governing coalition to pull that off. Whether or not he actually would have confronted all of the interests to get it done is an important and totally unanswerable question. But it points to some clear differences between Chavez and Maduro when we sort of think about these questions.
2: Alejandro, anything to add? What's so challenging about the counterfactual is that uh, from day one, literally, Maludo's presidency was already severely hampered because of. of- we recall the snap elections following Chavez's death that were supposed to confer upon him not just a significant amount of legitimacy, but but the the weight of the charisma transfer coming from Maduro or Chavez having designated uh, Maduro as his um, as his successor. They did not materialize. That election was in fact incredibly close. It was you know less than two percent difference, um, and that really set the stage for uh, Maduro presidency that um, that was always. Uh, re- reacting, it was always responding to. It was always trying to find, you know, ways to bring more important, more people into the fold of the inner circle, uh, to close ranks behind behind him, and therefore leave further and further to the side. Exactly the kinds of questions that both Gabriel and, and Naomi have been pointing to. And then when the prices of oil collapsed in 2014, that just you know was a tremendous game changer that that hamstrung any possibility to try to do anything, um, you know, seriously. Play in terms of, of changes of policy. But I entirely agree with, the, uh, with Gabriel that uh, that what Chavez, the only thing that we can credibly suggest that Chavez would have been able to do differently than Maduro is precisely to Keep in line the various, um, you know, fractious sectors of the Chavista coalition. In order, if he, um, you know, had decided to to carry out some more unpopular measures, right? So that certainly, I think we can say. But beyond that, it's just speculation.
0: Is it fair to say that the repression unleashed by Maduro and his approach to electoral democracy both represent a sharp break with Chavez?
1: I think undoubtedly. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Chavez didn't engage in a lot of repression. There was a lot of noise about that um, in terms of repression. And there's some, I mean, we can't let him off the hook entirely for that, but there were not substantial numbers of death. And most of the deaths I think happened in 2002 um, during the coup, although I'm happy to be corrected if there's other instances of that. Um, but certainly on the electoral democracy front, and Alejandro has written about this and spoken about this pretty extensively, that Electoral democracy was not the only part of the Chavista project. They wanted to go beyond it, but it was a huge part of it and was a source of pride for um, grassroots Chavistas throughout the country and certainly in the popular barrios in Caracas and elsewhere. Um, And so that was a sharp break, I think, starting in 2016. There was the election in 2015, we actually went down and it was part of a sort of international accompaniment team um and could see it was a very clean election and people were shocked that the opposition won a two-thirds majority and they allowed that to happen. Um but then starting in 2016 the government really took a turn away from electoral democracy, hamstringing the opposition, which was also doing things that they didn't really have constitutional authority over, but they um, suspended a recall referendum um, in the next year. They uh, suspended governor elections in 2017. They had a um, constituent assembly called by Maduro, which had questionable constitutionality the way he called it. And then it was pretty clear evidence, uh, about as close to clear evidence as you can get that the government committed fraud in terms of the number of people that they said had participated in that process in the rescheduled um, gubernatorial elections. Um, I guess they were originally, I think, for for twenty six I can't remember, but they were scheduled a year later. They stole one of the elections. Um, I believe it was in the state of Bolivar. Um, and then in the most recent election in May, um, they banned the leading opposition parties and they banned the leading candidates. So none of those things happened under Chavez. There was no evidence ever of electoral fraud happening under Chavez. There was no evidence of... Uh, the theft of elections, lots of sort of claims of that, but utterly um, baseless uh, as far as I can tell. And yet all of those things have happened under uh, Maduro. So there's clearly been a sharp break in my mind with uh, the Maduro administration and sort of embracing authoritarian rule.
3: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com.
0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Common Wind, Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Rediker. The Common Wind is a gripping and colorful account of the intercontinental networks that tied together the free and enslaved masses of the New World. Having delved deep into the gray obscurity of official 18th-century records in Spanish, English, and French, Julius Scott has written a powerful History from Below. Scott follows the spread of rumors of emancipation and the people behind them, bringing to life the protagonists in the slave revolution. Though The Common Wind is credited with having, quote, opened up the Black Atlantic with a rigor and a commitment to the power of written words, the manuscript remained unpublished for 32 years. Now, after receiving wide acclaim from leading historians of slavery in the New World, it has been published by Verso for the first time, with a foreword by the academic and author Marcus Redeker. The Common Wind... Afro-American Currents in the Age of the Haitian Revolution, by Julius S. Scott, with a foreword by Marcus Redeker. Out now from Verso Books. Gabriel, you, you write, We must be careful not to conflate protests against Maduro with support for the opposition, a sleight of hand that the opposition has made before. Waning support of the poor and working class for Maduro does not necessarily translate into acceptance of Guaido. Many in the popular sectors remain skeptical of the opposition, with good reason. We, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what is the political composition of the opposition, and has the opposition in recent years changed at all in terms of, A, putting forth social and economic demands that would speak to the needs of the working class base of Chavismo? And B, has it shown itself after repeated anti-democratic actions in the past to be committed to democracy and not just to whatever mechanism ensures its own power?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a telling sort of incident of this that happened in research I was doing in 2015 and then 2016 in Venezuela. And I was speaking to a member of um, Primera Justicia who was in the Um, municipality of Sucre in eastern Caracas. Um, He was part of the Carlos Ocariz local administration. He's one of the sort of leading supporters of Capriles and a very close friend, um, campaign manager. And their government at the local level had been a pretty interesting government. I mean, they clearly were a conservative government. They were a center-right government, but they did a lot of work with popular sectors. They actually implemented participatory budgeting. Um, They did social programs and they really tried to have outreach, and so, in twenty fifteen and days before the um national assembly election, I was speaking to um, you know a high level official within that local government who was also a member of Pi Justici, and he was really frustrated with the other opposition parties, and he said that you know we're not putting forward anything that speaks to the needs of the people; all we're doing is focusing on. The political solution of getting rid of maduro and he said that doesn't make sense it's not something that um, can actually speak to people and i think it speaks to the larger disconnect between most of the opposition and the popular sectors which has gone back you know certainly to the 2002 coup and has been reproduced over and over again with some exceptions i think Primera justicia being an interesting one um, but then i spoke to that same official in june of 2016 so six months later after the opposition had controlled the National Assembly, um, and his discourse was totally different. He himself was reproducing the discourse that he had criticized, saying that, no, nothing can happen economically until we get regime change. We have to just have this sort of regime change. So I think it speaks to uh, a shift within the opposition that prior to 2016, there was sort of this possibility of a more moderate opposition that at least wanted to reach out to popular sectors and was trying to do so. Not necessarily all of the opposition. I mean, in fact, definitely uh, not all of the opposition was doing that. Um, But part of the opposition, which had had a leading role in the opposition overall, was trying to do that. But since 2016, I think they've entirely moved away from that. And I think the results are tragic for Venezuela and really negative. Others? Well, I guess it's just that that in terms of that shift,
2: um, my sense is that it comes a little bit later. It comes right around 2017, after um, what has been since 2002 the bloodiest round of uh, of street protest, um, at least to date, and it extended for you know several months. Um, uh, upwards of one hundred and twenty five people were uh, were eventually reported you know, killed in in both protests as as well as part of the you know the the security forces. Um, and after that, when those protests it should be noted were um were were really called on and and to try to stop what had what was the the effort by the Maluda government to impose this national constituent assembly to basically, you know sidestep the power of the of the opposition national assembly. when, the national constituent assembly was in fact installed those protests died out but the other thing that happened and where it's coming into much sharper focus now is that the center of gravity of the opposition it was at that time that it shifted from the domestic plane to the international plane where it's far you know the voices of, of um you know exile and expats is um carries far more weight and that's also when you began to see people like um Luis Almagro, the Organization of American States chief, saying outrageous things like, "If you know, if, if if you are in the opposition in Venezuela and you in any way try to negotiate with the government, you're a traitor to your people." I mean, just outlandish uh, kind of commentaries, which again suggested that um, that there was really no room for the domestic opposition um, to to be able to try to find uh, you know solutions that were that at least tried to follow you know a more democratic path. Um and so yeah, I think I think that's the that was the the key turning point in um in these dynamics between the domestic and the international ones.
3: I think what I've noticed is that in terms of splits of opposition is that you know there seems to be this far much farther right uh faction led by Guaido right now pushing for sort of a total destruction of Chavismo, that you know that there is no negotiation that that what they want in this process is to foment kind of a total social collapse, and in order to generate the uprising of the military to depose Maduro. But but that the but a key part of that is that you know leaving Chavismo destroyed, and that you know they don't they don't want any remnants moving forward. Versus a faction that had been you know pushing for new new elections even recently. So and I think that the the strength of Guaido and his associates. Totally lies with Trump.
2: One of the things that that's important to keep in mind is that in in um, in terms also of your very original, you know, the first question that you posed about you know, why is this all happening now. And all of the various uh, components that had to align—not not only geopolitically, but but in terms of the the, the domestic um, you know, social and economic crisis—but the other one that we haven't talked about is that in 2015, when the opposition wins the National Assembly, one of the ways that they're able to to do that is by bringing together what had long been a very fractious coalition to basically um, you know to win control over the assembly. Um, but of course- course, once they did have power of the assembly, a lot of those uh, fractures began to to be manifested again. And one of the ways that they uh, uh, resolved to try to overcome them was to rotate the presidency of the National Assembly in the first four years between the the, the four largest political parties of the opposition, and then in the fifth year between, you know, um A smattering of of much smaller parties. Now, that in itself is not that significant. But what's interesting to think about is that um, the 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 correlation between the the moderate. Um, stands and the more radical stance goes from largest party to smallest party in Venezuela, right? So that the first you know, largest political opposition party is Acción Democrática, and they held a very moderate position. Then the next one, um, slightly less, and the next one, slightly less. And now this is the year that it fell upon Primera Justicia, which had been one of the more radical parties, as Gabriel mentioned before. They're the ones who had pushed in 2014 for street protests, but those, you know, even as early as 2014, 2017, uh, seven, they had been um, you know at the head of uh, of you know very violent street protests against the government um, and so you know th- this this kind of downward slide towards from moderate from more moderate to more radical happens to coincide in this fourth year when voluntad popular the the juan guaido party again with this more radical kind of orientation is the one that was um, because of this pact that had been made in two thousand and fifteen was the one that um was supposed to, you know, to take the helm, right? So I don't think it's any coincidence that you see these, these factors aligning towards radicalization.
1: And if I could just add one thing, I mean, I think that there's a sort of complementarity between the um, shift within the opposition from a sort of more openness towards economic demands in the 2015 election, which had a lot of appeal to popular sectors, many of whom voted for the opposition in that election. And electoral data shows that even Vente Terce de I think, uh, voted a uh, majority for the opposition in that uh, December f- 2015 election. So there's a shift from a more economic-centered, discourse or an openness to that towards a more political-centered one centered on regime change. And then in 2017, we get from the domestic to the international. So I think there's sort of a two-step process that is going on within the opposition.
3: In positing this sort of shift from the national or the domestic to the international, I also think we need to keep in mind that through programs like the National Endowment for for Democracy and, and all these U.S. efforts to groom leaders, you know, and I mean, I don't know, there's an article floating around about the history of Juan Guado, and it's clear that he was part of this this process of really being um, taught and groomed and helped along by um, people in the United States. And and so I think that, you know, it's, it's, and I think that that's true. I mean, I'm curious to hear from all of you, but it, it seems to me that that's true across the political parties, but that it has taken, the people have taken that in different directions, right? So, the, at the core, a lot of this has was always international. It was never like it was just national to begin with, and then becomes an international.
2: The center of gravity in terms of decision making as to how and uh, and where we exert pressure. I think it's been it was so striking to me again when somebody like Risa Magro comes out to say in the in the lead up to um, the two thousand eighteen presidential elections that you know if you even think about you know running for president then you are a traitor to your people because okay. then you become you know validating this this sham process and the fact that that carried weight that it could actually be done I think suggested that um, the domestic opposition was really completely sidelined at that point that's not at all in any sort of way to suggest that there hadn't already been significant amounts of international you know um, coordination with the opposition and the sectors of the opposition that is certainly the case but in terms of when that begins to take the the center stage, I think that that's um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's what we begin to see in 2017.
0: Looking to the opposite end of the political spectrum, is there a sizable left independent of Maduro, either on the political party or grassroots organizational level? There was, as we've discussed a bit already, of course, a massive process of organizing during the Bolivarian Revolution where where does that all stand now
1: So my impression I mean during the height of chavismo I don't know how sizable it was but there was an important left sort of current even within the ruling party at times they called themselves a sort of corriente radical or radical current within the PSUV the United Socialist Party of Venezuela um, and this was people like Julio Chavez who was a mayor of a municipality and central western Venezuela, which did a really radical participatory budget where 100% of the decisions for investment were made by ordinary citizens. And they pushed expropriation. They pushed land reform. They weren't really able to carry all of that out. um, But they pushed all of those things. And there was other people, aporea.org, which is a sort of online um, site for a lot of dissident Chavistas had some forums in 2010, 2011, trying to get the radical current up and running. There's a lot of ministers and former ministers of Chavez who were involved in some of those things. There was lots of sort of organizing at the grassroots sector, which I think Naomi has spoken about um, earlier, and All of that was pushing, you know, pretty radically against the mainstream Chavista project, and Chavez himself sort of embodied different uh, visions. He had a sort of more reformist vision, a more radical vision, a more corrupt vision in some sense. Um, He was all things to all people in some sense, but he did very much speak to the more radical vision and even encouraged it at certain times and discouraged it at other times. Um, But my sense is that that is much weaker today. It's not entirely absent. So I think it's interesting that there's a number of leftist intellectuals. Edgardo Lander is one of them. Um, Other former ministers of uh, Chavez, I might be misremembering the name. I think Ana Ocasio, um, but I might get her name wrong. Um, Another former minister of Chavez who have sort of been very critical of the Maduro administration, but not um, saying we want a right-wing neoliberal project, but we need a different project. Uh, My sense, however, is that they've been pretty isolated from actual popular sector organizing and that the brutal economic and social crisis and the polarization and the sort of bigger crisis Um, has prevented those sort of linkages from being established. So those are some impressions, but they're very fragmentary. You
2: know, there's no real critical Chavismo current that has significant weight in Venezuela right now. Um, for some of the reasons that, that Gabriel mentioned, in fact, I mean, one of the, you know, some of the the sectors that have been doing really interesting projects, especially on the the, the Venezuelan communes, um, in part because of their close proximity with the government, they've you know they basically rallied strongly behind, um, and I think partly that has to do with just the recognition that, um, as as Naomi really well said before, what's on the table right now is kind of a scorched earth strategy, vis-a-vis any and all vestiges of Chavismo Um, and to that extent of course that really you know creates a fight or flight mentality and to the extent that people haven't fled at least those within even those who are critical of Maduro or tried to be critical of Maduro within the fold of Chavismo they you know they understand now that that all of those projects will um, even the ones that 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 work right that they will um, they will be on the chopping block so you know that really mitigates against any kind of credible, you know, uh, left dissident position from within Chavismo um, from emerging at this time.
3: Just to add, yeah, I not much to add to that. I totally agree with what Gabriel and, and Alejandro just said. I mean, I think, you know, you see different communes have have expressed, like Los Argentes and Lara um, have, you know, put out communications in defense of Maduro and, and other communes. So, I mean, I think they're between a rock and a hard place, as many people have said. Um, some of these same groups have been incredibly critical of of Maduro and have spoken out in recent years on the specific problems, but you know, are quite clear that the option of, of, of the opposition in charge is just completely unacceptable to them and something that they could never support and you know and signifies the threat of mass violence and and retaliation undoing all the gains that they have made, even while they've been living in incredibly difficult circumstances.
0: How will this play out, likely, and how how should it, if it could play out in the, the best way possible?
1: Hmm, that's such a is a sad question when I think about what I think will happen. I mean, I think that there could be devastating war. I think that's a real possibility right now. The oil sanctions. I think there could also be devastating stalemate for a long time. I mean, I think for all the reasons Naomi and Alejandro are saying that there's a lot of people who are still loyal to the. Chavista, Madurista project, less so to Maduro, but, you know, important people in the military are loyal to him. And many grassroots Chavista sectors, if you force them to choose between what they see as U.S. aggression and Maduro, they're going to choose Maduro. Um, And they're not just going to go away. And if there was a war, they would hunker down and fight. Um, And if there's not a war, you know, the economic sanctions, the oil sanctions in particular, could go on for year, you know, I don't know, years, but a long time wreaking absolute havoc and damage. So it's a really, really depressing um, scenario, I think, which is, in my sense, one of the more likely ones, unfortunately, I think the more hopeful ones, um, the really hopeful one would be miraculously, we see a downplaying of polarization, and we see the growth of a sort of critical left project. But I honestly think that's something of a fantasy at the moment and not likely to happen. I think a more you know, less awful scenario would be some sort of peaceful transition where um, there's some sort of process that negotiates an exit for Maduro and leads to some sort of power sharing agreement for some period of time. And you avoid, you know, massive bloodshed and the devastation of oil sanctions and things like that. And maybe out of that, you know, process, you would get some Um, More reasonable opposition politics or more reasonable sort of reformist Chavista projects, Um, although I think that's a more long term thing so I'm not hopeful sadly
3: yeah I agree. I mean, I think people feel back into a corner. It's like we're not we're at a point. people are at a point where it's not where we can talk about what we want, but like the least devastating thing that might be able to happen that could possibly save lives and avoid mass bloodshed. You know I mean, that's like the state that things are in, so um, so I absolutely agree with Gabrielle that um, I think that the outlook is bleak, and I mean, I don't know if we're ready to have the conversation yet about solidarity.
0: That's my next question.
3: But maybe (laughs) Alejandro wants to say something about what the future might hold.
2: I guess the only thing that can be said is that whatever outcome is probably not going to take too long to uh, play itself out just because that's not that's not that's not. Where the United States has staked its interest, they can't have this stalemate continue. They need a quick resolution, and so the real question is: I mean, I don't, I don't think that there's, you know, I don't think that that Maludo, um, one way or another, is going to last too long in power. And so the real question is: Well, what? How do we respond to that reality? Number one, and number two, what does that mean for any kind of transition in Venezuela?
0: The politics of the American left towards Latin America can be summed up in one word with a lot of history, which is solidarity. The solidarity has informed U.S.-based movements against Pinochet in Chile, in support of revolutionary movements in Central America, and against Reagan's dirty wars in the 1980s, and in support of the Bolivarian Revolution, when especially when Chavez was at his peak. But I think there's a lot of uncertainty in the U.S. and probably elsewhere outside of Venezuela on the left and debate over what solidarity should mean now. How do you all think we should balance unequivocal opposition to U.S. intervention with the honest assessment of Maduro that solidarity with the Venezuelan people would seem to require?
3: I mean, obviously, I think we all agree that, like, first and foremost, we have to object in the strongest absolute terms to U.S. military intervention in Venezuela. Um, I think, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's lives, millions of people's lives potentially are at stake here in terms of, you know, direct and indirect impacts that uh, an intervention and war might have. So part of that is perhaps reigniting an anti-war movement in the United States. And, And there's a lot of, that's a big uphill battle, I think, for many liberals to try to understand what's at stake here precisely because decades now of distortion about the complexity on the ground in Venezuela. But I think, as Greg Randon talks about in a recent piece in The Nation, um, you know that the left wing of the de- Democratic Party absolutely needs to create a vision to counter the, the bipartisan foreign policy establishment um, in support of the war. And he makes this great point that it's not only because a war would be disastrous, but also because you know the Democratic Party can't create a coherent, message about what it stands for in this country if it doesn't have an international policy foreign policy, you know, that stands by its commitments to change and social justice and equality. So I think that those those things are incredibly linked and and I don't see really any contradiction in fact between being critical of the Maduro government and being in tremendous solidarity uh, with the Venezuelan people and I think, you know, in fact in order to to truly be in solidarity with Venezuelans, we need to reflect the reality, the complex reality on the ground and the suffering and also the intelligence of the people on the ground who who see the many layers of this and um, and and are struggling to to figure out the best way
1: forward yeah, I think that's a great answer and um I mean I think a starting point for thinking about it is the untenable choice that, um, you know, popular sectors in particular in Venezuela and, you know, even grassroots chavistas are being put in choosing between sort of brutal U.S.-led and supported and in many ways coordinated directed project of regime change and support for a pretty abhorrent current regime, the Maduro administration. And I think the Role of the left? I think it's hard. I mean, I, this question keeps me up at night, honestly. Um, that you know, it's really difficult to figure out exactly what to do. I think it, it is clear, crystal clear, that opposing U.S. intervention on moral grounds, on practical grounds, on strategic grounds. Including domestic policy, but I think primarily for the consequences it had in Venezuela is, is very clear. Um, I think it's also clear that we do want to, you know, foreground the efforts of Venezuelans themselves to decide what to do about the conflict. That's where I think it gets tricky because I think that um, it's hard to know exactly what Venezuelans as a whole think. I mean, there's polls that come out, but they're not always reliable. They don't go everywhere. They don't talk to everyone. Um, but to the extent that they those sorts of uh, indicators have come out, they indicate that most Venezuelans want Maduro gone. And I think sort of respecting that and acknowledging that and not defending Maduro in any way, not providing him cover, not providing him support um, while always you know, opposing U.S. intervention is really important. Um, and then supporting the possibility, supporting efforts for the untenable choice to be transformed into a better set of choices for um, Venezuelans for choices where they can actually choose what sort of future they want. That doesn't seem to be on the agenda. That's clearly not the agenda of Bolton and Trump and Elliot Abrams, but it has to be the agenda that uh, the left is supporting. And and I think that the trickiest thing, the nub of everything, maybe that, some of the sectors we want to support probably are going to support Maduro. They're going to support Maduro in the choice that they're given right now. And I personally don't support Maduro. I, I don't think that he's been good. I don't think that that's a good solution. As Alejandro said, he's not likely to last. But so how do you, you sort of acknowledge the mass of Venezuelans wanting Maduro to leave and also providing support for, you know, grassroots chavistas and popular sectors who may given the untenable choice, want Maduro to stay right now, I think it's really hard and I don't have any easy answers to that. Alejandro? Well, I mean, there's a
2: few proposals that are circulating right, um, from Uruguay and Mexico, some sectors of the European Union, although the European Parliament is um, and just voted today to to recognize Guaido, which was an important blow. Certainly, to moves towards um, deescalation. Um, but because there are those alternatives out there, I think part of the road forward, at least for um, those of us in the, the international left, is to amplify as much as possible um, and as a you know, those efforts and as a way basically to countermand this um, this sense of inevitability towards greater and greater escalation. Um, and of course, as both Naomi and Gabriel mentioned, what that would wreak both in the short term and in the long term for for Venezuelans on the ground, regardless of your political position, right? Um, so the sanctions are going to hit all Venezuelans in Venezuela. It's going to be affecting people in terms of access to to gasoline. You're going to start to see shortages very, very quickly. And then that's going to translate very quickly into other kinds of access to, to, to food, to medicine that um, again, even though those have been already in short supply um, in the past, now it's going to be, you know, far, you know, far more difficult to to access, whether from prices or from availability. So, you know, how to to respond to that? I think again, it's to resist the inevitability of escalation. Number one, to amplify the possibility of of a negotiation that has the absolutely elections on the on the table and maduro has to be you know has to cede on that terrain it, it that it just has to happen and and to the extent that the international left can, needs to be you know consequente with um with the the likelihood of of of, of an even worse outcome um you know maduro needs to be um you need to be needs to be pushed on that front and so that's you know that that's i think where where we where one needs to position themselves if you see New elections, um, ones that are credible, um, as as a way to de-escalate, but that also at the same time do not um, give the upper hand necessarily to um, to the forces, especially within the United States, who see not Venezuela as as a as an end, but as a means to a larger end, which is you know, you know reasserting um, control over the agenda, not only in Latin America but in other parts of the world.
0: As Greg Randon recently tweeted, the road to Tehran runs through Caracas.
2: Exactly. I mean, no one should be confused that this has anything to do with democracy or human rights or self-determination on the part of people like Abrams and and Bolton, and and least of all, Marco Rubio. So, um, you know, I think d- dismantling that argument is, is is both necessary and urgent.
3: I think one more thing I would add about international solidarity is that it also requires understanding that the fight that people are facing, the struggle that people face in Venezuela, that we have to see that there are also struggles that we face here in the United States, particularly in connection to the fight to decarbonize, to decrease our our reliance on fossil fuels. I mean, it's unclear what the long-term ramifications for Venezuela, no matter the price of oil or who's in charge given that you know, fossil fuels fuels really need to stay in the ground if we're going to avoid catastrophic climate change. So, like, that unites all of us and is a question that we all need to face within these incredibly complicated (laughs) moments. But I think that that's a broader issue about international or concern of international solidarity that people need to be building around.
1: Well, the only thing I'd add really quickly is that I think it's really important to underline the point Alejandro made earlier about elections. I think that has to be a route, and I think the international left has to support that. And far too many people on the international left or the U.S. left have made statements that suggest support for Maduro, and I think both practically and morally, that's untenable. Maduro does not deserve support. And most Venezuelans are not supportive of Maduro right now. Um, And his presidency is not legitimate. So it and I mean, on a practical level, I think it's um, clear that that is not a sustainable solution either. So I really do think that that has to be an important focus.
0: And one point on that that note, I, th- I think the principle underlying those sorts of arguments, if there is a principle underlying those sorts of arguments, is that any sort of acknowledgement of the fact that there are major problems with Maduro that have led many Venezuelans, the majority of Venezuelans to oppose him, then opens the door or, or grants some legitimacy to U.S. efforts at intervention. And I think that's absurd.
2: Well, not only that, but but if, if partly what we have long stood for in the international left in terms of solidarity to other countries is self-determination, then it's not entirely clear to me that that Maludo is, you know, the expression of a self-determining uh, populace. Um for the reasons that that Gabriel mentioned. And so that's partly why, you know, elections need to be um not just on the table but but the 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 real sort of escape valve to this um, under terms that are allow for for you know least amount of suffering on the part of the Venezuelan people I will say one more thing um, that that the other argument that I sometimes hear is that well, the the reason why the international left has to condemn um, Maduro um, is because if not, they'll lose credibility going forward in terms of making arguments, and that to me seems a non-starter of an argument because it basically uh, it, it it it's appealing to sectors that will never accept in any sort of way um, the legitimacy of larger claims that the that the left has domestically, for instance, as Naomi was mentioning. So appeasing Non-left sectors, as the reason or a primary reason why uh, you know the left should have one or another position, is. Um a self-defeatist. And so we have to make the, the, the argument based on, as Gabriel mentioned, based on moral grounds, based on, on political grounds, not on the grounds of whether somebody Brett Stevens will finally see the light and say, Oh, mm-hmm. I guess, yes.
0: <laughs> you know,
2: they, they were right. Um, of course that's just not gonna happen. And so, you know, we have to be honest on both sides as to uh, you know, on both sides of the argument as to, to why we're we take the position we do and it has to come from within, not because of what we expect others to to, to follow or not.
1: And directly responding to the point you made, Dan, in terms of how um supporting you know an option of getting, you know, ushering Maduro offstage does not equate with accepting u s. intervention. That's exactly what polls show Venezuelans themselves believe by strong majorities that a you know, clear majority want Maduro to be gone through a negotiated process, and an even stronger majority do not want Maduro to leave through a foreign intervention. So, it's not just an abstract thing. There's evidence that that's what Venezuelans themselves think.
0: I want to zoom out. we've We've talked a little bit about how the crisis in venezuela has been has been used as a political cudgel in the u s. by people like Brett Stevens and Michael Bloomberg against the left. I don't think that's going to be very consequential, but it's also I think it's being much more consequentially used as a political cudgel throughout. Latin America. Also in Spain, where Podemos has been attacked. I'm not really sure what the impact has been there. But in Latin America, I was just spent a lot of time researching this yesterday. As early as 2006 in Peru, Ollanto Humala was attacked based on on Venezuela. In Mexico, such attacks have for years been launched against Lopez Obrador, who, of course, nonetheless won last year's presidential election. In Brazil, the far right extremist candidate, Yair Bolsonaro, who of course went on to win, warned, quote, the good people in Brazil want to leave socialism behind. They don't want a regime like Venezuela's. We don't want Brazil tomorrow to become what Venezuela is today. In Chile, where I am right now, supporters of the successful conservative candidate Piñera warned that a left victory would turn the country into Chilezuela. In Colombia, oribista candidate Ivan Duque, who went on to win uh, as supporters urge people to, quote, vote so that Colombia doesn't become another Venezuela amid warnings of, quote, Castro Chavismo. My last question is, what is the purpose and function of flattening the entire pink tide into what has happened in Venezuela? On the one hand, of course, is profoundly cynical. On the other hand, It's also a fact that when a left project does not live up to its aspirations, whatever the reasons—and we've discussed a lot of the different reasons—whatever the reasons might be, we as the left are going to have to answer for it. And in that sense, it's it's just a fact that the catastrophe in Venezuela has become a political problem for the Latin American left in particular. How is the left across Latin America confronting this?
3: Well,
2: listen, I'll just mention this point to start. Venezuela has been a cudgel for the opposition or the right in Latin america long before this moment, right? So the elections in 2006 in Mexico were also featured Venezuela. Don't let Mexico become Venezuela. And that's when, you know, the elections are stolen, as some claim from, from Manuel López Obrador, who's now president of Mexico. And every election that has happened in Latin America over the last 15 years, in times of boom and in times of bust, Venezuela has been the favorite target of the the right. So you know I don't think that again this is sort of why why would we expect otherwise the the, the right is going to attack socialism when it's successful and when it's not successful because that's what the right is—it's what the right does—and so and that's to say that yes, Venezuela is being used to to castigate um, left projects throughout the region. Yes, the left needs to, as Gabriel and Naomi mentioned before, really seriously take stock of the failures of the Bolivarian project, but it should be done on terms that are left terms. They shouldn't be done on terms that try to kind of create a, an appeasing on the part of the right. Duque tried to do that in Colombia. He tried to distance himself as much as possible from Maduro, but of course, never to the satisfaction of those who are on the right, because there's no possibility of that, right? So all that is to say that that critiques are absolutely essential and necessary, but they should be made on the on the basis of how can we do it better Next time, what do we learn from this experience, such that when we again come to power, or when the configuration of you know politics again aligns, such that we can take advantage of uh, of a new opportunity, that we do it better. That's the re- you know that's what we should do. Um, not really concern ourselves with whether the the right accepts our arguments or not.
0: You said Duque tried to brush it off, but I believe uh, you meant uh, Petro.
1: I'm sorry, Petro. Yes. I mean I totally agree with what Alejandro is saying here. And I think that um, the left should not start by conceding that Venezuela was an inevitable failure, not conceding that Chavismo was a failure from the beginning. I think we still celebrate the very real, even if they're contradictory and flawed and imperfect, but the very real achievements Chavismo made for many, many years. They did really cut poverty dramatically. They did cut extreme poverty dramatically. They did empower millions of people. They did create a sense of dignity and possibility for millions of people within Venezuela. They made millions of people believe in socialism as a positive project at a moment when it was very much not seen that way. We didn't have Bernie Sanders. We didn't have Corbyn uh, back in the late 1990s or you know, more to the point, the mid-2000s when that was happening. So yes, there are major problems with the Chavista model, even at its height, um, but we shouldn't concede that it was an inevitable failure from the beginning because uh, it's not accurate. We need to have a correct analysis of why precisely the Chavista model went off the rails, Um, and we need to have an appreciation of how it succeeded and why it succeeded, and it succeeded not just in those sort of economic, social ways, but also electorally, year after year after year, Chavez and Chavista candidates blew opposition candidates out of the water through very fair and free electoral processes. And that was impressive and something to celebrate. So of course, we need to have an analysis of the difficulties of the challenges of the tragedy that's happened in Venezuela. And of course, we can't just blame it on the U.S. But um, there's another positive part of the story that I think we have to hold on to because it's real and it's very, very important.
0: Naomi, final thought?
1: I
3: would back against so that we should only think about it in terms of the pink tide. I mean I think it has an it the, the cudgel has a tremendous, tremendous impact on on domestic politics in the United States. And thinking that through and um, and having a response, you know, I mean constantly I'm confronted with the question of well well, now you see, don't you see how utopian visions end up? You can see that now, right? You know, and that and that's a really powerful strategy to completely undermine and erase the tremendous gains that Gabrielle was just raising, right? So, I mean, I think you know what what Alejandro was saying about we stick to analysis and critique on leftist terms. We we talk about you know the need to dig deeper to create social justice and equality globally. And that we don't see any of that as terrain that we're going to abandon somehow.
0: Well, Alejandro Velasco, Gabriel Hetland, and Naomi Schiller, thank you all very much. Thank, thank you so you. much. It was
3: a pleasure.
0: <music> Alejandro Velasco is professor of Latin American history at NYU executive editor of NACLA Report on the Americas, and the author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. Gabriel Hetland is professor of Latin American Studies at University of Albany, SUNY, and his writings on participatory democracy and politics in Venezuela and Bolivia have appeared in a number of academic journals and edited books, and such outlets as The Guardian, The Independent, The Nation, Jacobin, and NACLA. Naomi Schiller is professor of anthropology at Brooklyn College CUNY and the author of Channeling the State Community Media and Popular Politics in Venezuela. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after remarking that people make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. Sometimes once, sometimes twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Please follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling friends, family, whoever, about the show. Please, make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com thedig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help.